Hey sailors, this is D-A-R-E Radio coming at you in the wee hours, or the morning, or the night, or the afternoon, or the evening, just whenever you play this podcast. We're your spoop boys, Derek and Aaron, and we'll be with you through the day and night. How you doing, buddy? What's going on? How's your week been? Hey, Derek. Can I have a stomach pounder and a Coke? Yeah. What the (laughs) fuck is is exactly what I was wondering? (laughs) So I had to uh, Google that one. I also asked my mother and my uh, in-laws as well, like, what the fuck is a stomach pounder? And uh, even on the internet, the consensus seems to be that uh, they just pulled that out of nowhere. So, yeah, some people say it's Pop Rocks. Some people say it's like a greasy cheeseburger. John Carpenter, like in a tweet, said like, no, it's just something dumb from Fizz Ed that I thought sounded good. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So this episode, are you going to be my weatherman? Ah, you know it. Like that that Derek up up there in the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't guessed it. Based off of the title of our episode, we're going to be doing 1980's The Fog, the original, not that god-awful remake, which I haven't seen the remake, but I did read some reviews for it, and oh boy, does not sound bad. This is one of those cases where we shouldn't have to clarify which one we're talking about. (laughs) True. But uh, before that, like always, have you gotten into anything horror-related lately? Uh, So this is kind of horror-adjacent, but Heather and I finished watching Chernobyl. I've been waiting to talk about it until we got 100% through it. I say horror adjacent because it is not explicitly a horror TV show, but it is horrific. Obviously, it's about the explosion at the Chernobyl reactor in uh, the 80s and just kind of the subsequent bullshit that went along with that. The amount of body horror in that show is kind of staggering. The makeup in it is amazing, but God, it makes your stomach turn. Any, like, teeth or nail-related things to get under your skin? Uh, Not explicitly. I mean, there weren't scenes where, like, pulling teeth out, standing in front of a mirror or anything like that. But just seeing, like, a Russian firefighter who's been hit with nine lifetimes worth of radiation and his body is literally liquefying from the inside out is pretty putrid. And just some of the harrowing situations that these guys are in that, like, on the outside, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But there's, you know, an episode where they have this one shot of the guys going out onto the roof of the reactor building and they're carrying shovels. They have on as much protective equipment as they can, but they're under a 90 second timer. And literally all they have to do is go out onto the roof, scrape up one piece of the graphite that's sitting on the roof that's massively radioactive and just chuck it over the side of the building. That's it. But they're on a 90 second timer to do that. It's a one-shot take that's following these guys out onto the roof as they're stumbling, wearing gas masks and all this big, heavy protective gear, just trying to find one chunk of graphite and all this other rubble and just pitch it over the side of the building. And these guys knowing that they now have the maximum amount of radiation that you're supposed to have the entirety of your life done in one dose, that's it. They're not going back out there. 
their service to the country is finished, they can go home. Just the amount of insanity involved in getting that whole operation finished was bananas. So yeah, this the show's fantastic, by the way. So it's definitely worth a watch regardless of the fact that it's not explicitly horror. I find it interesting that a lot of people are now educated on nuclear reactors, at least a little bit, for what that's worth. A guy we know from college, Joe, has been championing the show and honestly it does sound fascinating because he was also mentioning how like it is funny how uh, a lot of viewers now have like kind of a basic understanding about nuclear reactors in general yeah because of the show but some of the stuff he he's talked about in the past with it he made it sound like it's really fascinating so yeah i kind of want to check it out it's only like six episodes too right it's five five okay even more manageable yeah it's it's definitely a good watch and it's it's kind of harrowing, so I mean, it's it's not necessarily a show you can binge unless you are just kind of numb to, like, all emotional weight and heaviness, but otherwise it's, it's really sad. And there's just bleak stuff in it. Like, there's literally a crew of guys that just have to roam around all the villages and just kill all the pets. Because all the, like, pets that are now running around loose because everybody's been evacuated, the pets are all incredibly radiated, so the they just have to be put down. That's it. So it's just these guys roaming around shooting animals, you know? So there's just like some bleak stuff in the show. But I think it's important to see it because it shows the human cost that went along with that whole situation. Not just the financial repercussions and the... the tangible stuff. I mean, there was a lot of core emotional trauma to these people. So it was very, very interesting. Well, I do find it amusing, too, that Russia is now making its own Chernobyl show in response. That apparently, like, blames us for the whole thing. Yeah, it's yeah. blaming the CIA for causing it, so... Sure. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Whatevs. <laughs> that might be about it, since we recorded last. I actually just ordered a chunk of movies off a of Barnes & Noble sale, so I might start watching through some of those for some future episodes, and just for the sake of getting through some podcasts, but that's all I got this week. Right before we started recording, I think I had asked you, too, about The Night of the Creeps coming out on Blu-ray from Scream Factory, so... Yeah, Scream Factory, one of my favorites. Uh, they are putting out a nice collector's edition of Night of the Creeps, and it's going to come with a Tom Atkins action figure, which I am very excited about. I was planning on, like, just selling it, but who knows? I might keep it. It depends on what my mood is. Nah, fuck that. You need to put that up on a (laughs) shelf somewhere. So, yeah, I already have enough toys between my Star Wars Black Series figures and then some Lego sets, but that specifically, I think Heather would probably put her foot down because she just has this irrational hatred of Tom Atkins. So, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Tom Atkins is the man, but whatever. I'm not going to bring it up now and ask you to elaborate, but I do, next time she is on the podcast... I want to elaborate on that because how can you hate Tom Atkins? I think it just boils down to like she finds him to be slightly just scummy. You know, he looks like a cinder block. So it's just kind of one of those like how does he manage to like bang every girl in every movie that he's in and everybody falls over themselves for how cool this guy is when he just looks like Grimace, you know? (laughs) So I, I think that's a lot of it, but we'll bug her about it the next time she's on. He seemed pretty attractive in Night of the Creeps. 
<laughs> so it's that mustache band, which I'll I'll get back to that when we get into the movie. It, it was more the one-liners for me, but hey, whatever. This is interesting. I actually think I have a more to talk about with other horror than you do for once. First off, though, I did want to ask you: Did you look at that article I sent you about the husband and wife that stumbled upon a spider in the middle of eating an entire possum? Nope. So <laughs> I saw the photo and then I was just like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't need to know the circumstances for this travesty. <laughs> so we're going to elaborate on that. So on the Daily Mail, this is the name of the article. The Stuff of Nightmares. Husband and wife stumble across a spider eating an entire possum. And yeah, there's pictures of this big fucking spider <laughs> just hanging from a wall. And it's like halfway down on a possum. Like the head of the possum is already eaten and the rest of the body is hanging, I guess, a whatever mandibles the spider has i forget what type of spider it was but i think this was in tasmania it was a pygmy possum which are smaller possums however this is still ridiculous that a spider that big could devour it it is a huntsman spider which i know do get pretty fucking huge so yeah i just wanted to ask you because i know that spiders are your fucking nightmare so nope nope it's a it's a travesty it's a terrible thing it's the worst but on a more serious note so i started a new video game and it's been one that I've had for a while and I don't know why it took me so long to start it probably just because I've been busy with other stuff or playing other video games but the name of this game and it's been out since I think it came out in 2017 originally and it's been re-released on like Xbox and Switch through 2018 and this year but it's called Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. That's a really intense title. Yeah it's like a dark fantasy slash horror action adventure game. I've only played about an hour and a half, two hours of it, but from what I can tell so far is it's kind of like action adventure hack and slash game mixed with like a walking simulator mixed with a horror game. Okay. The action isn't constant. The action is almost like set in certain pieces and in between those pieces you're kind of walking and running and solving puzzles to get to the next area. Basically the the idea of this game is it's inspired by kind of Norse mythology and Celtic culture and the idea is it's following a woman named Senua who is a picked warrior and she's basically making her way to through Helheim to reach the goddess Hela to basically bargain or rescue the soul of her lover. However, the thing about this game is it's Senua also suffers from mental illness. In the game, they call it the quote-unquote darkness, which are like voices in her head, which are quote-unquote furies. Yeah. But it's it's just like intense schizophrenia. And when they developed the game, they wanted to properly like represent psychosis. So they actually worked close with like neuroscientists and mental health specialists. And even I think people suffering from various types of conditions with schizophrenia and bipolar and all that stuff. And it's pretty intense. I haven't been jump scared, but like you're hearing voices throughout the game. You're seeing the hallucinations she's seeing. It's kind of sort of up in the air of whether or not she actually is making her way to Helheim or she's just hallucinating that she's making her way to Helheim. And yeah. the like demonic warriors she's fighting are just actual like other Celtic warriors. If you want to take like the dark side of this game, you could just think that she just landed on the coast, started having hallucinations, and now she's like making her way through this 
this like coastal town killing off warriors that are attacking her or whoever yeah sure so it's kind of like all up in the air and it's interesting too because there's like no health bar there's not really even a, a HUD of any kind and the voices will sometimes actually like kind of tell you what to do next or they'll tell you like how much health you have left uh, in a fight and it's just fascinating like it's hard to describe like how this all kind of sounds wacky and maybe even a little distasteful but it's not it's dark and it's beautiful the best thing you can do is honestly just check it out for yourself maybe even watch some gameplay of it if you have access to a video game system and this sounds like something up your alley I highly suggest I mean I'm only an hour and a half two hours in and I already highly suggest getting this game it's honestly this feels like one of those arguments that you can make for games being an art form sure um this game in specific so yeah i don't know i i like it i think it's great and yeah if that sounds like something you you want to want to look up go into it very psychologically horror related but on a, a much lighter note for horror and this isn't even really meant to be a horror thing but it does touch on a lot of real life fears so Nowaki and I have been watching a YouTube uh, series called Another Dirty Room by Dan Bell and it's on his YouTube channel This Is Dan Bell so the whole premise of this is Dan Bell and a couple other people like on his team like it's two or three other guys they purposely go town to town look up some of the worst motels and hotels they can find like you know those really shitty ones that are like right off the road uh like i'm thinking even the motels on airline highway in new orleans this sounds terrible already yeah they they look for the shittiest ones they could find and they go and spend a few hours in the hotel room and do like an investigation quote unquote to uncover just how gross these rooms are and they document the entire thing piss everywhere probably yeah so they find piss they find bed bugs shit everywhere like so it is like cringeworthy it's hilarious it's bingeable like Nowaki and I have watched over a dozen episodes of this there's two seasons of it by the way and season one they're a little bit more serious about it and they're not quite going into like total cesspits at least in the early episodes but season two which I highly suggest if you had to just watch one of them season two is probably the one to go with because they really pick some shitty places and it's a little bit more lighthearted but at the same time they're a lot less reserved about going deep into like the garbage of these rooms god i already know that this is probably not for me (laughs) dude like i i haven't squirmed or gagged while watching it but this definitely touches on the real life fear of going to a hotel you have no idea what other people have done in that bed and in that hotel room you rented out even in a nice hotel or in like an average hotel and god knows if you actually knew what they did you probably wouldn't sleep there this show like touches on a hundred percent yeah you're never gonna stay at any of these motels or hotels unless you absolutely have to <laughs> hopefully yeah hope- <laughs> well i keep telling the wacky i was just like who would stay in these rooms other than to like have sex or do other really like weird criminal shit i guarantee you a lot of it is just blue collar workers a lot of it is just truckers that need a place to stay overnight and it's like stupid cheap and it's already on the road i guess but dude some of these rooms, I would just sleep in the car. I would way 100% rather sleep in my car, even if it meant I got shitty sleep, than even step foot in some of these rooms. The fucking season finale for their season two, that place they go into... 
I don't want to spoil anything just for anyone who like who should you should just go check it out if you're gonna watch even just one episode of the show go check out season two episode 10 and just have a blast like again it's not meant to be a horror show it's meant to be a comedy show but it just touches on those real life fears of like bed bugs and roaches and mice and piss and shit everywhere and blood and cum like just oh my God. the worst like I keep looking at Nowacki I'm like what is wrong with people He's convinced, Noaki has a theory that people rent these out uh, rooms out for a couple hours and literal, literally have piss parties because they just keep finding piss everywhere. And they'll always flip the mattress and there's always piss stains like all up and down the mattress everywhere they go. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the number one thing that I would think would be everywhere. The joke is like throw a black light on and you see jizz stains everywhere. But like to me, nah, the real culprit is just piss everywhere. And that's equally as horrifying. Well, so and I'm glad you brought that up because especially in season two, that's exactly what they do. There's a there's always a section of the episode where they throw on the black light and they start looking around the room. They even will uh, because I keep finding like drugs and used like needles and shit, too. Uh, they started bringing along like drug testing equipment and like blood testing equipment. Okay. So if they come across, like, uh, what they think is dried blood, they can, like, put it in the uh, hemostat or whatever it's called and see if it has a reaction. And same with drugs. Like, they've tested cocaine, heroin, you name it. Yay. So, yes, another dirty room. I really think you would like it, Mansfield. It is. It's it's like watching a train wreck. You just cannot turn away. But at the same time, it is god-awful. On other notes, our boy Bray Wyatt, I just learned this week that his whole costume, the one that you made fun of, Mansfield, and I think his overall design for like his fiend gimmick was actually designed by Tom Savani and his team, like horror legend Tom, Sav- Savini. Tom Savini. Yeah, okay. Not Savani, Savini. Uh, so Tom Savini actually designed Bray Wyatt's like new character with the clown mask and everything else. So I thought that was pretty neat. Huh. All right. He at least went to like a good source. So I figured it was just whoever the in-house design person is for the WWE was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, so... Next time you decide to make fun of it for being <laughs> Slipknot or whatever, just know Tom Savini made it. So, no, I'm just kidding. I thought it was in-house, too, until I, I read that. But that's pretty fucking cool. But, yeah, before we dig into the fog, so uh, a lot of the fears that this movie touches upon is uh, stuff surrounding, like, bodies of water, even, um, and even literally just fog in general. So I wanted to ask you, do you have any, like, scary experiences with any bodies of water or, like, driving through fog or anything like that so yes i definitely have like a very specific instance that i can think of where i felt kind of that intense anxiety of driving through it and the weird sense of unease that there was something out in that fog you know like there was just something sinister happening so when i was 16, 17. It was right when I started driving. Um, I just got my license and my father and I drove down to New Orleans and we went down there for my birthday. I think we just went to go see some movie that wasn't playing where we lived. I drove down there, which was kind of like a big, like, okay, first time I'm driving to New Orleans and getting, like, all up in that traffic. So, we drove down there, and then on the way back, my dad was like, yeah, cool, I'm just gonna go to sleep. And this is at two in the morning. He was like, (laughs) I'm just gonna go to sleep, so you're good, everything's alright, just, you got this. 
I start driving, and because of where we were in the city, I can't remember where we were, but because of where we were, it didn't just take us back out on what's called the Twin Spans, just the main bridge that goes back up 59 North. It brought us out some weird back way and through like the shittiest, smallest, ricketyest little wooden bridge that was kind of terrifying. Here I am, a brand new driver, teenager, two in the morning, my dad is asleep. And I'm already like anxious and tense because I'm, you know, riding in the car with a parent rather than just driving on my own. So all of a sudden I get into some like thick fucking werewolf fog. This is like Satan came out and just like vaped all over the swamp, right? And... (laughs) I'm going through all of this on this rickety wooden bridge. And I mean like glug, 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 rickety kind of wooden bridge driving our clunky giant family van over all of it. And I couldn't see five or six feet in front of me. And I was terrified that I was just going to like end up driving right into the swamp and just like dumping us right into the water, you know, off the edge somehow. And in my head, I was just like, oh God, there's alligators probably all all around us and just like all kinds of horrible swamp stuff. What is going on? Where did this fog come from out of nowhere? Cause I could literally see it. There was like a wall of fog in front of us and I just drove right into it. And all of a sudden was just enveloped in it. And it was about 20, 30 minutes of driving through like that back way to get back out onto the main highway again, where I was just white knuckling the whole time. So that's definitely the one that comes to mind for me for sure yeah funny you mentioned it being a new orleans trip because mine also is around new orleans it was probably i think honestly it might have been the christmas season of 2005 like after katrina and so katrina hit in the summer of 2005 and my family we didn't move back to the city until december i want to say and then my high school didn't reopen until late january so it was one of those cool things where like not cool obviously but at the time as a teenager i thought it was the best thing ever we had more than a month off for christmas holiday because the school i was going to to for that first semester of my junior year after Katrina hit. They let out mid-December, whereas normally it would be late December for me. And then, like I said, my school didn't reopen until late January to allow for people who were kind of like scattered across the United States to finish their semesters at whatever schools they were and return back to our school. So because of that, like I said, I had over a month time off and I kind of switched up friend groups, too, because a lot of the people I did hang out with either never moved back or didn't move back until much later. And so I kind of started hanging out with people who I had been friends with, like only really at school, but like never really hung out with too often outside of school. Yeah. And they started becoming better friends to me. So even in December, January, and really all through 2006, a year or two afterwards, it was still a little bit like the Wild West in New Orleans. Like we still had National Guard around. Yeah. Half the city was still closed. I mean, at that time, there was Katrina destruction everywhere still, no matter where you went. Most of the roads were reopened, but 
I remember my friend and I, we decided to go like explore to see some of the devastation that happened around after like the floodwaters had cleared and everything. And so we were driving it and it was only like seven or eight at night. It was early on. It was like seven, eight or nine on a Friday or Saturday. And we decided to drive through the Lakeview area, which is not a bad area whatsoever. So we're driving through this area and this was area was one of the hardest hit areas and it didn't really come back for a while after Katrina. No street lights were on and you don't realize just how dark places can get, especially in a city area, in a suburban area, until you don't have street lights. Oh yeah. And we were so we were driving around and we had to like put on his brights because no one else was around. And every once in a while we'd see maybe like one or two cars kind of drive by on a nearby road, but otherwise no one was around. There was shit everywhere. I mean, we were seeing cats and possums and things like that running around because it was devoid of human life. And we were just driving around looking. And we weren't going to, like, even as teenagers, we knew better than to go fuck around in any of this. But we just wanted to take a look at what happened. And as we're driving around... It, it, it's like something out of a horror movie because we got closer to Lake Pontchartrain and the closer we got to Lake Pontchartrain, the thicker this fog that started rolling in, it started rolling in and we already have limited view because of the no streetlights. Then this fog starts rolling in. You know, we think we're untouchable. We're 17, 18 year old little shitheads. So we're like thinking whatever, like, ooh, this is creepy, but you know, whatever. This is also kind of cool. Let's keep driving. And I mean, this was supposed to be a clear night. I even remember like for whatever reason, and either my parents or whatever checking the weather like earlier that day and it was a clear night it was a little bit colder since it was December out of fucking nowhere a thunderstorm starts up as well so we're driving through fog, a thunderstorm, which I've never encountered both of them at the same time, and no streetlights, and we're now, like, in Katrina wreckage. Yeah. We're like, all right, we need to get the fuck out of here. Also, to top it all off, a car just got kind of turned off of one of the roads and started, like, kind of following us, and we didn't think anything of it at first because one of the roads we were on was one of the more main roads of this area, but it started making the same turns we did a little too much, and, like, you know how you get that fear and the pity your stomach like you're being followed yeah now both of us were actively like aware that this was happening we decided to kind of make some crazy turns just to see and this fucking car did the same exact turns we did and like we did turns that made no sense like we went around in circles and things like that we started freaking the fuck out. We were getting ready to like get 911 on the phone, but even if we got 911 on the phone, what the fuck? Like it's going to take them forever because, you know, half the police force isn't around and yeah. they already have their hands full plus National Guard and like we're dumbasses for going to this area we probably shouldn't be in. Yeah, so we finally made it back to Veterans Boulevard, which did have street lights on and everything else. And once we hit Veterans Boulevard and there were some cars around, that car like kind of followed us for a little while longer and then all of a sudden and it just sped up and it flew right by us. Like, because at Veterans, I think the speed limit at the time was like 45, 40 miles an hour and this thing just flew by us going like 70 or 80. So obviously yeah. either they were fucking with us or I, I don't know. And it took us a while to get back to Veterans because of the fog. Like, we got kind of got a little lost in Lakeview because neither one of us kind of knew the area that well at that time and we couldn't see shit. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the story that sticks out in my mind with fog. Hey. Yeah. Don't like a stranger following you in the dark. Yeah. Cool. Cool. 
Uh, this is going to be our, our second time doing this, so bear with us. This is still oh, yeah. something pretty new. So I hope you guys are actually enjoying our show. If you do, did you know you can actually get paid to listen to this podcast? I know it sounds a little crazy, but it's true. We are on the Podcoin app, which is kind of the cryptocurrency, which I don't like using that term because I, I know that kind of that could scare some people away. But it's it's really easy to use. You just download the app and then you just download your favorite podcast from the app. I still haven't run into a podcast that isn't on the app and you just start listening and it's totally free and you build up these coins as you listen. Like I think for every 10 minutes or every minute or something, you get so many coins. And you, once you build up enough listening coins, you can turn them in for or like Amazon gift cards, Starbucks gift cards, or the thing that Aaron and I both really like is you can actually turn them into charities. You can just use your pod coins and submit them to charities that they offer on the app when you look up where you can spend your coins. If you download the app and you use our code, and our code is simply D-A-R-E, DARE, you get a bunch of free coins to start off with. And like I said, I've transferred personally, I've transferred all of my podcasts from Apple Podcasts to the PodCoin app because there's really no reason not to. It's exactly the same, except now I'm building up these pod coins. I've now been doing it for about two weeks, and I'm already pretty close to my first thousand coins. They build up relatively quickly, like especially if I haven't been listening to podcasts nearly as much as I usually do. So once I, I start listening to my podcasts more religiously like I normally do, I'll probably build up even quicker and even faster. I know this sounds crazy, but it, it's, it's a great app. I'm glad we're on it. It's also another way to, to get our show and yeah, so if this sounds like something uh, you don't mind checking out, it would help us out, it would help PodCoin out, and you can help yourself out by using our code D-A-R-E when you uh, download and register with the app. And again, it's all totally free. I haven't even really gotten emails or anything like that from them. I, I don't see what a downside to using this app. Cool, cool. So all that said, uh, let's go ahead and start talking about John Carpenter's 1980 masterpiece, The Fog. This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here. And let me be the first to wish Antonio Bay a happy birthday. We're 100 years old today. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something unknown came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. Oh, Jesus. One hundred years ago, between midnight and one, something unnatural came out of the fog. Now, it has returned. years ago, between midnight and one, something evil came out of the fog. Now it has returned. Who's there? The fog. Antonio Bay has a curse on it. We're all cursed. Dan, stay away from the door! Someone listen to me! Get inside and lock your doors. Close your windows. There's something in the fog. Stay away from the fog. From the creator of Halloween, the ultimate experience in terror and suspense. 
John Carpenter's The Fog. What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Between midnight and one, it will find you. So yeah, it being a John Carpenter movie, I kind of went in with expectations for a decent soundtrack, which the soundtrack is pretty decent, pretty haunting. It's kind of funny that our first John Carpenter movie that we're, we're deciding to do isn't like Halloween or The Thing. No, it's The Fog, which... I'm down for. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Which I know we've mentioned before, like, we're going to try and space out the big ones, like original Halloween and The Thing. We're going to kind of try and space those out more and try and focus on, I don't want to say like low-key or underappreciated movies, but just movies that might be something that not everyone knows about. And this is one of those movies, for me at least, where I knew John Carpenter did The Fog, but I had no idea what The Fog was actually about. It was just one of those movies that's always overlooked because he did Halloween and this kind of came out what I think right after Halloween or like shortly after Halloween? Yeah, so this was after Halloween and Carpenter had been doing some TV movies kind of here and there. Um, He did the Elvis movie with Kurt Russell and I I can't ever remember the title. Someone's watching me, someone will watch over me, something like that. I get that mixed up with three other movies that have similar titles, but he had been doing some TV movies kind of in between these theatrical releases and this movie is kind of the start of a really amazing amazing run in his career because then we get Escape from New York The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China and just lots of good stuff going forward. Starman. Even people like Christine. Like, Yeah, Christine's great. Yeah, I remember my dad saying for the longest time Christine was actually his favorite horror movie. I mean, but like, yeah, listen to this run uh, because he put out Halloween in 1978 and then yeah, he did Someone's Watching Me is the name of that's, that movie. That's it, yeah. He did the Elvis movie, but then after that, only two years after Halloween, he puts out The Fog. A year later, he puts out Escape from New York. A year later, he puts out The Thing. A year later is Christine, then Starman, then two years after Starman in 1986 is Big Trouble in Little China. Then the next year, he does Prince of Darkness, and then the next year in 1988, he does They Live. Talk about a fucking hell of a run there. That entire run is amazing. So, we didn't just kind of pull this one out, you know, necessarily. I mean, this is definitely one that I think a lot of people are kind of reappraising now. It's always been a decent movie. It did really well when it came out financially. It kind of got mixed reviews, but it's one that I think a lot of people are going back to now and really kind of giving it a second glance. I really do think that Scream Factory's Blu-ray has a good part to contribute there because this was a movie that a lot of people had really only seen on TV or seen on VHS. So seeing like a really nice, clean, gorgeous widescreen version of this on Blu-ray makes a big difference to you know a lot of the people who were seeing it for the first time for sure. I will say though, I would kill to watch this on VHS. I don't know why. I just <laughs> I feel like that whole aesthetic would work really well for this movie. Also, too, I wanted to ask you: Is this the second time him and Jamie Lee Curtis work together since Halloween? Yes. So this is number two. Okay. So yeah, as we talk about the cast, you know, some of this will come up, but yeah, this is the second time they've worked together. This is the first time that Tom Atkins has worked with him. This is the first time that Adrian Barbeau has worked with him. Which they were married by this point, and this is actually her like cinema film debut. She had been in TV movies up to this point, but this was her first like actual movie debut. You know, so a lot of the people who kind of go on to be in more of his stuff, you know, are just now getting in. Um, And there's lots of smaller people in this movie that have been in his other previous movies. So we'll kind of talk through some of that. But yeah, um, this movie, it had a small budget all said and done. And the studio, Avco Embassy, spent like a lot of extra money to promote the movie. So, 
ads and radio stuff, but they even bought like expensive fog machines for the lobbies of certain theaters across the country. So they spent way more like promoting the movie than they actually did in the movie. And that's, it's fairly common to spend almost as much as the budget of a movie in the marketing and advertising stuff on the back end. Um, that's still very common and kind of always has been, but three times the amount is pretty bananas. But they were coasting off that success of Halloween and this movie still did really, really well for them all said and done. And apparently Carpenter was aiming for like a PG rating, which is kind of nuts. But ultimately, between the studio specifically wanting like more terror and more gore and then the movie just being too short, it was under 80 minutes apparently, you know, when they got the first cut in. Um, they had to go back and reshoot and add some additional scenes. So some of the like violence part was added back in. There's not a lot of gore like at all. I mean, there's no there you you see some like pirate stabbings, but it's not ever gory or bloody. But some additional stuff was shot, and they kind of padded out the movie from there. But it all works very very well holistically. Another interesting thing too, apparently Carpenter had the idea to create a spinoff anthology series based around the fog and it wasn't necessarily gonna like be directly based on the movie or a sequel to the movie it was gonna kind of connect lightly mostly just kind of be a way to like tell other supernatural stories and further into the series it was gonna connect to the movie more and more that's an interesting idea and Carpenter seems to have a thing for anthologies because the original idea for Halloween the original concept was that every year there was going to be a new Halloween movie and it was going to be a new story every single year and after the success of the first one immediately the producers in the studio were like no 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 no. just go back to Michael Myers just go back to Michael Myers right he's a marketable character so yeah and obviously Carpenter reluctantly okay fine he wrote a sequel somebody else directed it and then for the third movie they go full bananas in a completely different direction again with Tom Atkins and that one like was massively derided at the time and now it's kind of getting a cult following because it's bananas like it's super fun even though it has nothing to do with the larger series did Carpenter have anything to do with three he had more to do with three than he did with two from everything that I've ever really seen he produced it and he did the music for it I think he might have been like one of the co-writers as well but ultimately that and then body bags from the 90s which that was the one I was trying to think of earlier. Body Bags was a TV movie that he did for Showtime, I believe, and it was kind of meant to be like a backdoor pilot for an anthology show on Showtime, and it just never happened past that. So now we just have this made-for-TV movie called Body Bags, where he plays the Crypt Keeper character that's in between the little segments. So yeah, John Carpenter like has a thing for anthologies, for sure. That was kind of the initial concept for this as well. Did he ever like actually do an anthology or were all these kind of just ideas that never panned out because either it was too successful or studio got involved or what? Well, those three specifically like never really came to fruition and he directed a segment in the Masters of Horror series for Showtime which it's one of the best ones in that whole series. It's called Cigarette Burns. It's about a, you know, mysterious film that was made by this weirdo and anybody who watches it will go crazy and die and kill people. Like, it's that kind of thing. So it's Norman Reedus, Norman Greasus as this detective, and he's trying to find this missing film for Udo Kier, who's this weird kind of eclectic 
collector guy. So that one's pretty fun, all said and done. But yeah, that was kind of it. I mean, he never really got involved with anything else. I'd love for him to still try to get something up and going, you know, especially with networks like Shudder available now. It would be great to, like, get him involved in something going forward. But honestly, he's too busy, like, being a legit rock star right now. I was going to say, because you sent me, like, two of his albums, and they are rock solid. It's good shit, man. Fun to listen to. Even, like, creepy, because they're basically, they all honestly sound like soundtracks for one of his movies that just never came out. Yeah, that was kind of the whole idea. They're called Lost Themes and Lost Themes 2. They are not actually Lost Themes, but like you just said, that's kind of the whole idea is that it's kind of meant to emulate some of the stuff that would be in a movie, you know? If John Carpenter had actually ended up directing Firestarter, what would that soundtrack look like? Here you go. So it's that's kind of the whole idea. Um, also, too, I wanted to ask you in your opinion, because I know George Romero never really got to enjoy the success and legacy of his own movies because at the time like his movies or horror movies in general weren't as well regarded would you say John Carpenter is is kind of the exception to that where like he's still alive and we're now reaching an era of cinema which I think has been going on for the last several years of appreciation for horror movies now do you think he's been able to enjoy the success of his own movies however too I will say John Carpenter has done other things that are either horror adjacent or completely different like Escape from New York so what's your opinion on that? I mean regardless of the genre he's working in which like you said most of it is horror ultimately I think of all of the staple horror directors he might be the one who has had the most success overall and I don't necessarily mean that financially or critically or from like a fan standpoint I kind of mean a combination of all of those things but cumulatively because at the end of the day you know it's it's strange Halloween was a massive hit but I honestly don't think he like really saw a ton of money off that just because of how the financials worked on the back end so even though he makes this movie that is groundbreaking that's a massive cultural phenomenon I don't think he really got much out of it all said and done other than his next gig you know he makes the thing and the thing now we look back and is fucking amazing you know the thing has so much more going on under the surface the effects are incredible like that movie is one of his absolute best period that movie was massively panned and derided and shit on by everybody when it came out you literally have Siskel and Ebert calling it pornography at the time because it was just so hated which is mind-boggling now yeah that's so insane to me in hindsight I, I mean shit we weren't even born when that came out but still just like looking back on it's like how how could you say this movie has nothing to offer even just based off the visuals alone regardless of the story and acting in it the visuals alone I feel like at the time should have been praised for what they were able to accomplish yeah I mean one of the common answers to that is well it came out in a massively stacked month all said and done and it was directly up against E.T. so there's your like biggest problem now I just want to see E.T. stuck in with the thing like I had a weird thought in my head just now you you combine E.T. with the thing right and so you have the kids and E.T. are at this arctic facility as well for whatever reason and E.T. is trying to lead the kids around the arctic facility to survive while the thing the quote-unquote evil alien is trying to kill them so you have a tra- yeah. akin to trauma movie on your hands so let me give you an idea this is may 1982 through like july OK, 
okay, so like this is the summer of 82. So starting at the beginning of May, and I'm just skimming for like big immediate ones. Conan the Barbarian, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Rocky 3. That's all May. Damn. June, we have Poltergeist, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Grease, or it's Grease 2 rather, Annie, Blade Runner. We have The Thing. Blade Runner and The Thing literally both came out the same week and both were massively panned at the time. Could you imagine though? Like oh, yeah. going back in time knowing like these movies are actually masterpieces. Oh yeah. And then getting into July we've got Tron, A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was on a re-release but still it made like a giant extra chunk of money there. And then deeper into the summer, yeah, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Friday the 13th Part 3, a re-release of Star Wars, An Officer and a Gentleman, Beastmaster, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Amityville 2. I mean, there's like so much stuff in that summer, which is kind of bananas. But yeah, imagine like going to a movie theater at the time and your choices are Rocky 3, Poltergeist, Star Trek 2, E.T., Blade Runner, and The Thing. Like those are all at the theater at the same exact time. Just go at fucking 11 or 12 and stay there the whole day. Yeah. So that's kind of the common answer as to why The Thing didn't do well. But yeah. either way, let's get off the yeah. thing, I guess, and get back to the fog. So, Well, and I, I just, I wanted to touch on John Carpenter a good bit because this episode, because it's our first episode with one of his movies. Yeah, this is the first one, one we've done. We're going to be doing other John Carpenter movies for sure down the line. So we'll probably spend less time talking about him prior to getting into those movies. But this is our first one. So I felt like we just kind of had to do him justice and talk about it because it's, it's fucking John Carpenter. The dude is a horror legend. Yeah. And I think, I guess to loop back around to the question that you were asking me, I think that of all the main guys, he has probably been able to enjoy his success the most, but even then, like, not to the degree that he should, because he still had trouble getting financing later in his career. He still had lots of speed bumps along the way where movies either just weren't accepted at the time or because of weird financial stuff on the back end, he just made no money off of them. You know, so now he is on that Mount Rushmore for sure. But ultimately, you know, I still wish that, you know, he could come back to the movie world and just do some knockout stuff. You know, and it's nice seeing that he's dipping his toes back in with doing the score for the new Halloween movie, uh, Halloween 2018. So hopefully he can get back into doing at least something, you know, again, like Shudder, throw him a series, please give him some kind of like little anthology thing to let him make a Western, you know, with some horror elements to it, like get all the little weird things that he's wanted to do and just throw them into one show for him. <laughs> yeah, so we are going to be covering 1980s The Fog. Before we get into the play-by-play of the movie and spoilers and all that, this movie, even for one as old as it is, had a lot of jump scares. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is a John Carpenter thing or just a thing of older movies that do jump scares. There is practically no build-up to some of these jump scares. A character will be in the mid-talking mid-sense conversation and some Something will happen. Um, like there's no score build up. Like the score sometimes the score will like pop like when it happens, but there's no like slow build. There's very few like false scares into a jump scare like a lot of more modern movies do. This movie is definitely supernatural horror. There's no psychological elements. There's no like for the jump scare part of it, you're right about the jump scares in terms of how they function, but I think all of his movies, all of his horror movies especially, are really good mix of really solid jump scares, but also just creepy 
Halloween dread terror kind of moments. It's kind of a good half and half because you're focused on the things that jump scared you in the movie, but think about all the moments in this movie where you see the thing coming at you and it's just going and going and happening in slow motion. Not slow motion, but like it's just happening slowly. You know, think about all the like ghost pirates like creeping up to the car as they're trying to get it started. And like you see it coming, you know it's there. Yeah. It's not like it's just going to jump out, but it's just slowly getting there. Yeah. Seeing the guy on the fishing boat where you see the, the pirates sneaking up behind him. Yeah. Um, and you see it and the guy doesn't see it. Like there, it, there's as much creeping dread scares as there are jump scares. And that's why I think Carpenter works well because he's he's a good mix of all the different types of ways that he can kind of get you. Yeah. There's one scene later on in the movie that I will bring up again that is a good example of that where it's not just a jump scare. It is like a creeping dread. You see it coming, but it, it still is terrifying. This touched on a lot of my own personal horrors. Like this, It's kind of funny that we went from Green Room to this one because they are completely different horror movies. Yeah. And the, the horror itself is completely different. If you're a horror aficionado or someone who doesn't really find ghosts or supernatural stuff that's scary, this is more of kind of even like just a roller coaster fun movie to like watch. It is... I don't want to say it's... I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but it's a very simple horror movie. Yeah. It's just like it establishes a premise. It establishes the lore of why these ghosts and what these things are doing and why they're there. It establishes it, and then it just does it. There's no, like... There's no psychological interpretation. I, I mean, there's... It's not overly complicated in any way, shape, or form. There's not all kinds of deeper meanings. It's just... It is what it is. Yeah. It's a straightforward story. It's a campfire story. Yeah, t- that's exactly a good example. It's like... A campfire story for a coastal town, basically, because yeah. a lot of the themes are nautical. Uh, a lot of the horror is nautical related, which the concept of drowning alone is a horrifying concept to me. So mix that in with ghosts, and yeah, you got a recipe for the fog. If you are susceptible to jump scares, it's dated. The movie is dated, so the jump scares aren't super terrifying, but I still jumped a couple times. This movie would have, at least when I was younger, would have terrified the shit out of me. If you are really susceptible to jump scares, Uh, you may want to try a different movie at first and build yourself up to this one but otherwise I mean if you're a horror fan and you haven't watched The Fog fucking shut off this podcast right now go watch it and come back to us I mean it's a John Carpenter movie like it's fucking good yeah and I have definitely known people who are like oh is that the one with like the ghost pirates oh it sounds dumb and I get that like that might be the impression but yeah just from a craft standpoint this one is still like so good it's so well made just dumb stuff like the lighting in this movie is amazing Amazing. The amount of like neon lights in this movie and just where everything's kind of hitting is so fucking good. Definitely worth watching all sudden done. This is probably in my top five Carpenter easily. Yeah, I mean, and it takes itself seriously enough, but also with kind of a wink and a nod to the fact that it's pirate ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Pirate ghosts that come for you in the fog. But it does take itself seriously enough to really like make it believable and make it not because this movie, like the concept of the movie in the hands of a less director or it walks a fine line of being ridiculous. It would have been garbage with anybody else running it. Yeah, Yeah, so uh, with all that said, let's dig into the fog. Uh, We are now going to go into the play-by-play and go through the uh, plot synopsis, so if you haven't watched it and you want to watch it before listening to this, pause right here, go watch it, and come back to us. Alright, so the movie opens on a beach with an old man and a group of kids gathered around a campfire and he's telling them the legend of 
of the Elizabeth Dane, which I'm not necessarily going to go into detail right now because we find out more about it as the movie progresses. So I kind of want to leave that for as we're going along. To get an idea of how this story is and how the guy is saying it, I'll just leave you like this. The head, the tail, the whole damn thing. The whole damn thing. Black like a dove's eyes. <laughs> it's very much like Jaws. Yeah, he's definitely getting his, you know, scare the kids kind of vibe on. But yeah, it's it's just a fun scene. This is one of the scenes that they actually shot after the fact and then added back in. So this was not originally, you know, included. Twelve men went in, one came out. <laughs> <laughs> You get in that cage, <laughs> you go down the water. Um, anyway, the scene's great because it just sets the mood of the movie where there is that kind of subtle urban legendy kind of feel to everything. There's just kind of a quiet, reserved terror that's going on as well. So the, the opening scene perfectly sets the mood. The title card is amazing. Hearing his score immediately in the beginning is great. The thing that is amazing too, and it's such a, again, going back to the word simple, but and I don't mean this in a bad way. Carpenter literally makes up his own fictional urban legend within a, his own fictional coastal town. Well, kind of. Kind so of, yeah, yeah. The actual legend of the, like, pirate ship and all that backstory that we're going to get to in a little bit, that was all actually based on a real-life event that took place in Goleta, California. Yeah, I, I knew so. about that, but just the whole concept of everything else that happens in this coastal town surrounding the oh, well, sure, loose yeah. interpretation of this legend. Yeah, so... So yeah, the town is called Antonio Bay, and it's in California. The legend of the Elizabeth Dane is about this pirate ship that crashed off the coast. So we'll find out more details about that as we go on. So we now go to the small church in the town where the priest, Father Malone, who's played by Hal Holbrook from All the President's Men and Rituals, which I've mentioned on this podcast before, and uh, he was in Wall Street and Into the Wild later in his career. I mean, he's been in a ton of stuff. He is the priest at this church, and he is definitely struggling with alcoholism throughout this movie, which is a very, like, interesting and subtle detail that's never, like, directly addressed. I mean, you see him, like, drinking, but the whole idea of his alcoholism is never addressed, so it's it's just kind of interesting, because he's this broken character that ultimately ends up at the center of this entire story, and it's a little bit about his redemption. Yeah, I have a theory about like his alcoholism and him being broken but yeah he's totally like the trope of the haunted priest yeah and he's kind of he's not a center like the centerpiece but he he's very important to the legend and the, the movie in general and I mean right off the bat like this is a very very good show don't tell sort of moment where an altar boy is kind of taking care of shutting down the church for the day and which that church attendant guy is actually John Carpenter I didn't know that I'm glad you said that because I didn't even know that yep yeah well, it wasn't even Alter Boy, it was just kind of. I, I guess a, a janitor or I don't know what he was. Just like a, a church attendant guy. Yeah. He goes in to like check on the priest and like kind of check out for the day and like as he enters the room the priest is like drinking some wine out of a glass. It's again that's kind of just a, a nice small detail that lets you know a little bit about the character without outright spelling this guy has a drinking problem. Yeah and I mean just the like interaction between the two of them it definitely tells that you know he is aware of Father Malone's 
drinking issues, you know, and he's kind of tiptoeing around some of it. So you can definitely pick all that up just in their body language and the dialogue that they have. So they shut the church down for the night and Father Malone is in his office and all of a sudden this giant chunk of stone like falls off the wall onto his desk. And this is kind of the first jump scare where, you know, he's going to leave for the night and all of a sudden just smash this giant chunk of rock falls yeah, off. Yeah, fucking five or six minutes in. <laughs> yep. So he goes to look at it and there's actually a, like a hole in the wall and he reaches in and finds this old journal. So he pulls the journal out of the wall where this rock fell. This is also kind of right around midnight. All of a sudden we keep seeing clocks in different places to show us the time. So then we kind of get a sweep of the town. You're getting kind of a good idea of like the look and feel of Antonio Bay during this scene. Yeah, and I think even starting in the priest's office, a lot of these places, they all listen to like one local jazz station or like jazz show because it's like a midnight show that, that plays and it's it's done by one of the people living in the town and throughout this kind of sweeping moment starting from the church and through the town where it like kind of shows some weird shit happening you're hearing the voice of this woman who's running this radio show but also too there are moments where like a radio will turn on by itself or it'll get staticky or whatever so yeah cars are like turning on on their own payphones are ringing on their own so the electronics in the town are kind of all going haywire right and this is a it's not like an intense scheme but it is a little a little freaky or scary because it's very much paranormal activity like what I guess a lot of those ghost hunting shows wishes they could capture of just shit moving around houses clocks going off on their own the cars like you were saying all start honking Um, not only do the payphones ring but I think they're spitting out change and things like that so from here um, after we kind of get this overview of the town as the credits roll we are introduced to Nick Castle who is played by Tom fucking Atkins he's back again baby oh yeah (laughs) Um, he is driving down a back road in his shitty old pickup truck, drinking the entire way. Uh, not like in a drunk kind of way, just kind of in a, it's a Friday and that's just what you do, I guess, kind of way. And he finds a hitchhiker named Elizabeth Sally, who is played by Jamie Lee Curtis from Halloween before this. So he picks her up and as they're kind of chit-chatting about whether or not they're weird, suddenly like all the windows in the truck blow out, you know, and they're kind of freaked out. This is right as like this wave of weird shit is happening across the entire town. I think I remember reading somewhere that a lot of people consider this like one of the biggest jump scares of this movie or scariest moment. It is pretty scary because I mean, this is one of those moments where it's like mid conversation. Someone's just talking. Boom. All these like uh, windows blow out. Tom Atkins is pretty funny because he's almost he's trying to be a little bit more reserved than normal, but it's still Tom Atkins. So like I think this was before he like really set into the persona. Yeah, because I'm thinking of Tom Atkins in Night of the Creeps, which was, you know, several years later after this movie. But uh, because Night of the Creeps, Tom Atkins and this Tom Atkins are very different. Yeah, pretty different. Jamie Lee Curtis, I like in this movie, but her character and I I guess this was done on purpose. It's kind of kept up as a little bit of a mystery as to like why she's hitchhiking, who she is. She kind of just shows up as there and decides to like stick around. And that's kind of just a lot of her character, unless I miss some kind of detail later on in the movie about it other than no that's kind of it and they even joke later in the movie like oh yeah all this weird stuff started happening as soon as I showed up must be my bad luck lol lol it just kind of is what it is 
is one kind of interesting note. So Tom Atkins' character is Nick Castle, which in real life, Nick Castle um, is the guy who played the shape in Halloween. He also co-wrote Escape from New York and is the director of The Last Starfighter. So that's a fun detail there. Also, and this is just my personal theory, but apparently Kurt Russell was offered a role in this movie and had to turn it down for like scheduling reasons. I 100% think that the role he was offered was this Nick Castle role because it is a little bit strange the relationship that ends up happening with him and Jamie Lee Curtis just from like an age gap standpoint but you know that would make more sense if it was Kurt Russell. Also I am 100% convinced the only reason that Tom Atkins does not have his mustache (laughs) is because they were trying to make him look younger than he was. I was gonna ask you about this because given where like things go because Jamie Lee Curtis she's barely in her 20s when this movie like and that's the crazy thing too to me she looks younger in this than she did in Halloween yeah I don't know what it is necessarily but yeah like I'm pretty convinced that the role that Kurt Russell was offered was probably this Nick Castle role yeah because Tom Atkins what was his age at the time of this movie like oh he was probably like already in his late 30s late 30s yeah early 40s and he was a friend of Adrian Barbeau which is kind of how he got roped into the movie so it might have just been one of those things where again Kurt Russell wasn't available and they're like cool I have a friend who is an actor as well you know you should let him read and they kind of went from there so we now actually meet the voice on the radio Stevie Wayne who is played by Adrian Barbeau and uh, like I mentioned earlier she at this point is married to John Carpenter and this is her like feature film debut she obviously has had an insane career I mean she's got well well over a hundred credits she was in Escape from New York and Swamp Thing and Creep Show so she's been in a lot of horror stuff but even stranger stuff like she was the voice of Catwoman on Batman the Animated Series. Which I didn't know and that's great. Yep. So she is the one who has been running the radio station. So she is based out of a lighthouse on the coast which is kind of the coolest place to have a radio station but at the same time it doesn't seem like it's soundproof at all. Like just from us recording and the things that I've had to do to kind of try to make the sound quality better. I can't imagine being in a lighthouse with all kinds of like motors and gears running in the background and wind whipping from the coast and all that would be at all conducive for running a radio station, but sure. Whatever. I mean, if she could make it work, I love the setup of her kind of little recording studio, which is really just the top of the lighthouse, but it looks fantastic. Yeah, like, it looks great. The whole idea of somebody running a midnight show, pretty much just playing jazz music in a small town from the lighthouse in the town is so cool to me. Again, this kind of, I know it brought this up in the past, but I love the trope of a small town having a little bit of a darker side to it after hours. This is more of a lighthearted darker side because it's midnight jazz show and she purposely like uh, has a seductive voice as she's talking on on there and even using like innuendos. But yeah, again, just going back to that, like this town has a darker side to it at nighttime and you kind of already saw it with like all the supernatural shit happening right around midnight and uh 
I don't know why I find that trope so fascinating, but I do. It's part of the reason why I love Twin Peaks so much, because I I can't tell you how many towns I drive through on road trips and things like that. And yeah, I always just wonder, like, what's going on when the sun goes down around here? Yeah, which apparently the reason why they play jazz at the radio station is because the rights were just cheaper than, like, rock and roll. Rock and roll seems like the obvious choice for Carpenter, but ultimately, like, if they have to pay the rights for, like, what they're going to play within the movie, Jazz was ultimately cheaper. And jazz, I honestly think, works better for this. Yeah. So, a local weather guy um, named Dan O'Bannon, who was played by Charles Cyphers, he was a character actor that was also in Halloween. He played Sheriff Brackett. He was in Assault on Precinct 13. He calls her to let her know about a large fog bank that's rolling in, and that there's a fishing boat out currently that needs to be warned about the fog bank coming in. And he's definitely got a crush on her. He's kind of hitting on her a little bit. His character name, Dan O'Bannon, is another reference. Dan O'Bannon is the director of Return of the Living Dead. He was the writer on John Carpenter's first feature film, his student film that became a feature film, Dark Star. He also wrote Alien, Dead and Buried, and then he wrote Life Force and Invaders from Mars from um, Toby Hooper's canon run, and he wrote Total Recall as well. So she, Stevie Wayne, gets on the radio and calls out to the crew of the Seagrass which is the boat that's out in the bay just to kind of give them a heads up about the fog that's rolling in. Because they're all listening to the radio on the sea boat, so it's like everyone in this fucking town just, who's who's up late, all of them have this radio show on. Yeah, It's just funny because like some of them are even like, man, I would love to meet the uh, woman behind that voice. And like one of the guys is like, aren't you married? And he's just like, not that happily married. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to Dan, too, because I love the character of Dan, but for all the wrong reasons. Like, he is just such a caricature of... I feel like this character would serve well as, like, an 80s corporate douchebag in, like, another movie. Yeah, I'm gonna hit on the secretary and be completely open with it, and I'm a cool guy. That character is laughably bad, but, I mean, not bad as in terms of, like, a bad being a bad character, just laughably, like, just so full of himself and sleazy. Yeah. yeah. Stevie happens to mention that the next song is by the Coupe de Villes, and Coupe de Villes is a band that John Carpenter and his frequent music collaborator Alan Howarth have together, so that was another little fun Easter egg. One thing I do like, too, as the guys on the boat are listening to the report, she's telling them there's a fog bank rolling in, you know, heads up, and they're like, there's no fog out there. Uh, yeah, I don't see any fog out there. And then it just cuts over to, like, the other fisherman who just says, hey, there's a fog bank out there. <laughs> All they had to do was, like, look to the right out of the window. Yeah. Yeah. Also, too, this is another name Easter egg, but one of the fishermen is named Tommy Wallace, after Tommy Lee Wallace. He was kind of a jack-of-all-trades on a lot of the prior Carpenter movies, doing all kinds of different roles. But he's also the director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Fright Night 2, and the original, like, TV miniseries version of It from the 90s. Gotcha. Carpenter just loves these Easter eggs. Oh, and there's there's still like one or two more as we get to them. So yeah, it's it's just fun kind of having like different characters named after people that he knows in his real life. Yeah. So the strange glowing fog starts to roll up 
to the boat and we see it creep into the ship and it disables their engine. So they're now dead in the water with no power. This is something that's pretty established a lot in this scene is the fact that when the fog rolls in, not only does it just roll in, it literally almost like smoke comes into any room and under the door and everything else. And anything it touches, at least it's electronic, it fucks with. I mean, there are some characters who will like mention like, oh, the generator's down. Why is that? That makes no fucking sense. But like, again, there's a lot of show don't tell here too because it'll show like oh here comes the fog and then like something will spark and blow out or even water will straight up leak out of things inexplicably. There's a fun sentience to the fog as well and the fog effects in this movie are bananas I mean it's it's a lot of it is just reversals and it's just people blowing fog in the right directions but it's still executed so well because we see that in other movies and it's often laughably bad and corny but it works really really well in this movie to kind of give it this you know, mysterious, otherworldly presence and, like, awareness. And the fact that it's glowing, too, adds to all of that. Yeah. So, the fishermen get out to the top deck to see what's going on, and all of a sudden, they see this massive sailing boat, like a giant pirate ship, just cruising right alongside of them. They're looking up into the masts, and then, as the fog kind of blends back in, all of a sudden, the boat's gone. Just as quick as it appears, it's now suddenly disappeared. Like the boat, when you catch glimpses of it, think like Pirates of the Caribbean, like it's kind of like Davy Jones, decrepit, yeah. filled with barnacles, shit's torn, kind of like ghost ship. It's a ghost ship. Yeah. So the men then look down the deck further and they spot a figure just kind of standing in the fog all the way at the end. As they're calling out to the person to see who they are, all of a sudden they are surrounded by more of these shadowy figures and they are murdered. They're all meat hooked up and stabbed and taken out. The fun part of this, I mean, it's murder. I don't know why I'm saying fun, but you know, this is another creeping dread into jump scares kind of moment because like, think of that visual, like a fog, a mysterious glowing fog rolls in and then you're looking through it and you just see something or someone standing at the end of it and you have no idea who it is. They're not responding to you. That setup alone is really fucking creepy and then on top of that, then you get jumped by these figures in the shadow. And I mean, it's pretty funny the way this is shot because it, it's very much shot almost like a slasher film once these uh, ghosts or revenants or whatever you want to call them start attacking these fishermen because like someone will get meat hooked and then like one or two others will come up and like just stab, 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 stab almost like it's a slasher movie. Yeah. Another thing to mention too and we kind of talked about this earlier is no blood really. Like it's violent and it's like slasher movie stabbing but you don't ever really see the yeah, gore no of gore it. In this yeah. Yeah, you never see any blood spill, which I can see why they were going for the PG, <laughs> even though they're being murdered by ghosts. There's no blood being spilled, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. This is where the fears really kind of ratchet up the whole idea of strangers in the fog and the fog being an entity of itself. And once you get caught in the fog, you're basically fucked. A ghost story with fog in it. It's just, I don't know, man, a simple, it's simple, but it's effective. Yep. So the weatherman, Dan, calls Stevie again and just kind of lets her know like, hey, the fog's moving in the opposite direction of the wind, which that's weird, but whatever. So the fishermen are most likely fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, because I think even while the fishermen are being killed off, doesn't one of them try and like call back to the coast or something and like they discover like all all their equipment is down or... I mean, yeah, like the generator's dead. He's just trying to reach out to somebody, anybody, and you know, he's killed off. So... 
we cut to Nick and Elizabeth, and apparently it looks uh, kind of post-coital. They banged. Laying in bed together with just, like, undershirts <laughs> on. So, yeah, they uh, they basically went back to his place and banged. And as they're kind of chit-chatting about what her plans are and why she's hitchhiking, there's all of a sudden this really heavy, loud knocking that interrupts their conversation. And this is, again, as the fog is kind of rolling in. Atkins goes to the front door, and we see one of the shadowy figures, like, just about to kill him. Beat hook, you know, up in the air, about to swing. But right as the clock strikes 1 a.m., all of a sudden, like, the spirit disappears, the clock shatters, and the fog starts to kind of retreat. So he just, like, barely, barely made it out alive. So then we go to the next morning, and we see a young boy named Andy. And he was one of the boys from the beginning of the movie, sitting around the campfire listening to the story of the Elizabeth Dane. And he is kind of roaming around the beach. He's got a fishing rod. And he sees a little, like, shiny glint on some rocks and he runs over and finds that there's a gold coin on the rocks and he kind of reaches out to pick it up but right as he does the waves wash over it and then all of a sudden it's a piece of driftwood so he picks the driftwood up and carved into it is just the word Dane yeah and so we're throwing in a little bit of like a boy's adventure into this horror movie too this is the setup of like the goonies basically like yeah little boy thinks he sees gold finds driftwood it's a pirate ship let's go solve a mystery and get some gold so he excitedly brings it back home to show his mother who we find out is stevie wayne she's sleeping off her night shift as a dj so she kind of groggily wakes up and is just like yeah what you know what are you looking at yeah that's cool and he's showing her this piece of wood he's all excited about it and she's kind of just okay cool (laughs) i need to go back to sleep go do whatever mommy was up until 2 a.m playing jazz like (laughs) you need to go play leave me alone yeah and this is where the like joke that i made at the top of the show comes in where he just looks at her and just says hey mom can i have a stomach pounder and a coke (laughs) again like what the fuck is a stomach pounder and she's like she knows exactly what he's talking about And see, that's where, like, a lot of the back and forth about what is the stomach pounder comes in, because she even says, no, not until after you've had lunch. So, like, if it was a greasy cheeseburger, then, like, that doesn't make any sense. I kind of come down on the idea of maybe, I don't know, maybe it's, like, Pop Rocks or something, like I read online. I'm thinking it's Pop Rocks and Coke. Like, this kid wants to just purposely make his belly full of, like, sparklers going off or something. (laughs) So, yeah, this has kind of shown us establishing their relationship relationship and we go back to after this uh nick and elizabeth and they're at the docks and nick is informed by a friend of his that the seagrass the boat that was attacked last night by the ghost never made it back to shore nick is visibly a little frustrated and also a little bit concerned like well where what's going on here like why hasn't this happened so he decides to hit a buddy up so they could go look for the missing boat themselves and the reason why nick is kind of concerned about is because one of his friends is on the boat yeah uh, so on to the next scene, we're introduced to another character. Her name is Kathy Williams, and I don't recognize this actress, but she's played by Janet Lee or Lay. So it's, it's Janet Lee from Psycho and uh, Touch of Evil. She is also Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. I did not know any of this yeah. to just show you guys how little I know about fucking horror movies. Like, 
What the fuck? So yeah, she she is woman who is main character in Psycho stabbed a third of the way through in the shower. Like she is the famous shower scene killer. I didn't know that. Holy shit. All right. Well, yep. there you go. I'm showing my ignorance on this topic, but uh, this is basically the town's hundredth anniversary of its founding. And she is basically helping plan the town centennial. She is also with her assistant named Sandy, who is played by Nancy Loomis, which I do recognize Nancy Loomis from Halloween one, two, and three. Um, and they're talking about the weird events that happened last night. I think Sandy was the one who kind of came across the all the cars going off. Yeah. They're talking about the weird events, and Kathy mentions that her husband, another one of the sailors on the seagrass, didn't come home last night. Uh, something I wanted to actually ask you about this. Is Kathy the mayor of this town, or her husband the mayor of this town? No, the mayor is a separate character who okay. shows up later, and it's basically, like, not really a factor. She's just kind of one of these figureheads within the town so she's helping with the centennial she does also mention when they get to the church in a minute that like she's helping restore the cemetery so she's just kind of one of these figureheads in the community yeah they made it sound like she's kind of one of the town elite like one of the old families of the town that kind of yeah helps support it and everything so um so her and sandy they arrive at the church where father malone is at and they are basically coming to request him to do the benediction for this centennial celebration but Father Malone is not in a good place when they arrive. Yeah. They, they let themselves into the church because he doesn't answer. And they're like kind of looking around for him. And a false jump scare happens because as they're looking around for him, uh, like from behind Kathy, he just kind of comes out of the shadows. Yeah. Like he in just, the corner of the church. Like, what the fuck are you doing? He like falls down to the floor just out of the corner. He just launches forward yeah, through like, the darkness. You, you obviously knew they were in the church because they were being loud and calling out your name like yeah. what the fuck are you doing sulking in the corner you golem piece of shit but yeah so he's like coming out there and he's like being distant and vague and out of it and like as they're asking him about the benediction he reveals to them this diary which he reads a segment from it and I'll let you take over on the details of this diary because you were the one that mentioned earlier about the whole idea surrounding this this legend so just for clarification too this scene is being intercut with scenes of Nick and Elizabeth getting to the boat they find the boat and it's kind of all like being intercut but just for the sake of everything making sense we're just going to kind of talk through one segment and then talk through the other so right we find out that the diary actually belonged to Father Malone's grandfather from a century earlier and the diary reveals that in 1880 the six founders of Antonio Bay, one of which was Malone's grandfather. They deliberately sank and plundered the clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane. And this is kind of what we're hearing at the beginning with the old man telling the kids the legend on the beach. And the reason why I kind of skipped it then was because they kind of tell you right up front what happened and then you're kind of getting it back again here where it's actually a little more important. So we find out that the ship was owned by this guy named Blake who was a wealthy man but he was stricken with leprosy. And he wanted to establish a leper colony colony near the area but the founders of the town were basically like yeah we're not gonna have this like weirdo come with his lepers they can fuck off basically so they conspired together to basically fuck this guy Blake over so they build these bonfires on the beach to lure the ship to a dangerous point you know where there's like a lot of rocks and there's this really 
intensely dense fog that rolls in to keep them from seeing what they're sailing into. So they sail toward the bonfires on the beach, but it lures them right into where all the rocks are, so the ship crashes into the rocks, and then the six guys go and plunder the ship and murder all the survivors and steal all the gold on board. And that gold was used to establish Antonio Bay and the church. So the centennial is essentially just a celebration of these murderers that they're holding up on a pedestal still. Oh, the lepers went in. None came out. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna stop doing the Jaws references. <laughs> um, but yeah, talk about a really weird, deliberate, fucked up plan. <laughs> like, yeah, really. we're gonna kill your asses off for having leprosy, which is already like kind of fucked up, and then we're gonna take your gold to build our town right near where we killed your asses. Like, what the fuck? So yes. What I thought was going to kind of happen here was like Kathy and her assistant were going to be like sort of a little villainous, be like, oh, whatever, this is old ghost tales or like, oh, well, that happened 100 years ago. Fuck them. But instead, actually, Kathy is kind of a little unsure on what to do. And even Sandy's a little bit like kind of taken aback. But they kind of gather themselves and like, look, we still can't stop the centennial of this town happening. Like, can you please just still come and do the benediction? And Father Malone never says a yes or no, but it's pretty much implied that like he's not doing it. But this is even more like just Father Malone turning into like the haunted priest character. Like, because even when he's telling them the story and everything, he's still real fucking distant and maybe even a little drunk. Uh, just yeah. really out of it, like really super depressed and everything else. Yeah, but I, uh, like I said, I, I really thought this was going to go one way with Kathy's character. And then surprisingly, she shows a little bit of humanity by being pretty conflicted and about this. Now, going back to the scenes with Nick and Elizabeth, that once again, they were being cut back and forth while the the priest was uh, telling us the story. So they locate the missing boat. They go out into the water and Elizabeth, like, because I think even Nick is like, you don't have to come out with me. But Elizabeth's like, no, I want to tag along, which, again, uh, nothing against Elizabeth's character. But like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like, why are you just like, let's go find a ship. Are you part of this? Solve a mystery. Find some pirate gold like with the little kid. Like, what the fuck is happening? So uh, Nick and Elizabeth, they locate the ship. And as they're all exploring the ship, because I think there's the third guy with them, they are finding all these weird clues like the thermometer is cracked at 20 degrees the engine is flooded but there's no water like things are rusted and smashed and knocked over and they're saying that like this couldn't have happened unless this ship literally took on water or was underwater for a period of time whereas this all seem to happen overnight and they can't find like an entry for the water to come in and as they're kind of exploring kind of the cabin area uh, someone's selling a, a story was it Nick or uh, th- I, I kind of forget who was telling the story Nick was telling a story kind of about how his father years before and his friends kind of encountered a similar situation you know where found another boat and all this weird stuff happened and he also found a gold coin and the gold coin like disappeared so he was kind of just saying that this has happened before. Yeah, and, and it was heavily implied that, like, this happened before out in the same waters. Yeah. And as he's saying this, you kind of see one of the lockers that's kind of fallen over on the si- uh, onto the, its side, like, sort of slowly start to open. There's a little minor jump scare because it opens right by Elizabeth with kind of a loud noise, and she kind of jumps at first, and she's just like, oh, man, what the fuck? And then literally, like, <laughs> literally, like, three or four seconds later, and one of the worst jump scare world best, but also worst jump scares in the movie a fucking eyeless corpse of one of the fishermen falls from 
like on top, like from the ceiling or like a cupboard area above her and lands on her as they're like having this heart to heart conversation. Just like one false jump scare into a major jump scare. <laughs> and Jamie Lee Curtis is like the best freak out scream too. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, she like really li- like lived this scene. It seemed like. So yeah. So that, that fucking happens. Uh, just a reminder that you're in a ghost story movie. <laughs> so after that happens, it kind of cuts from there and it shows Stevie and she's arriving back at the lighthouse to broadcast her radio show. And she actually brought the wood plank with her for some reason. And she sets it next down to her tape player. And the tape player is like playing it on. It's one of those looped ones where it's just like giving the time. So it's kind of like you could tune into that FM frequency when she's not having her show and get the time, which is probably something that was pretty common back in the 80s, I imagine, when you don't didn't have cell phones or anything like that. And she uh, is like getting ready for the night, kind of sipping coffee, getting things prepared. And she has a plank off to the side by her tape player and tape deck. And all of a sudden the plank just starts seeping water from literally the plank itself. Like it's almost generating water and it causes the tape player to short circuit. The loop that was playing starts playing this weird mysterious man's voice from the tape player that's like kind of swearing revenge. And the words six must die appear on on the wood instead of Dane before it bursts into flames. So keep that in mind, six must die. Stevie freaks out, grabs the extinguisher, she extinguishes it, and once she does, she sees that it just reads Dane again, the tape player is working normally, and the wood is dry. The wood's dry, everything's dry, like, she's just like, what the fuck was that? And she kind of just gets like that instinct urge to call her son at the house. Her son is being watched by, like, a nanny when she's at, at work, and she calls her son to ask him like how he found the plank and he tells her the story and she basically says hey do me a favor and just stay inside tonight and he's like oh but mom I want to go play on the beach some more and she's like no stay away from the rocks stay inside just please do this for me yeah so we then cut to Elizabeth and Nick again and they are at I guess the hospital with the town mortician and he is examining the fisherman's body that they brought back from the boat which would the police be involved at this point like like, why is Nick and Elizabeth? You would think so, but there are, like, no police around to be seen whatsoever, so... Yeah, again, this goes back to, like, what the fuck even is this town? Like, how many people are actually in this town? But yeah. Nick and Elizabeth are just... kind. This kind of reminds me of, like, Mothman Prophecies, like, when uh, the cop just lets this guy just tag along and look at criminal records. Like, yeah. this mortician just lets Nick and Elizabeth into the morgue area, like, while he's examining the body. Well, you can tell that Nick and the mortician are like buds but still like why are you just hanging out Um, which by the way the mortician's name is Dr. Fibes which that is a reference to the Dr. Fibes movies starring Vincent Price so Dr. Fibes swears this guy drowned period despite them having found him like on board his lungs were filled with water his body looked as if it had been underwater for like well over a week which doesn't make any sense at all yeah and Nick is even having like kind of a little bit of an argument with him about it that's impossible we found him on the ship and it was dry everywhere. Yeah. He had to have died last night because you know, I saw them yesterday, blah 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 and the more guys like, I don't know what to tell you man, all the medical evidence points yeah. to this guy being underwater for over a week. While they're outside the examining room talking for some reason again, Elizabeth is alone in the autopsy room yeah. with the what? corpse like laying on the table covered up, right? Yeah, for reasons. Yeah, while she's kind of you know, looking out the window a hand drops off the table 
table and you know the corpse grabs a scalpel off the tray that's laying right there sits up and gets off the table and starts walking toward elizabeth and she turns around and like freaks out and screams right which nick and dr fibes hear and they rush into the room and the corpse is just lifeless laying on the ground again but the number three is carved into the floor with the scalpel yeah so touching on the scene for a bit we had mentioned moments of yeah there are jump scares in the movie but then also moments of creeping dread and just kind of building horror this is the scene for me that is like the quintessential example of it in this film this scene is probably the creepiest scene in the movie for me personally the whole idea of being in a morgue and like I don't know why Elizabeth had her back turned to the body I mean I, I understand some people would have their backs turned to a body like that I get it but still just she just stares at the fucking wall like in the corner for like yeah. a good few minutes as this corpse slowly like rises up, up from under the sheet grabs a scalpel and like slowly like zombie walks towards her it just it kind of goes back to like the fears that were effective for me in like the autopsy of Jane Doe and like my, my experiences in the hospital like this is kind of one of those reminiscent moments of that so for me this was like the probably creepiest scene in the movie so we then kind of move to later in the evening as it's getting dark and the town's centennial celebrations are beginning but we are at a bar with Nick and Kathy and then her assistant Sandy and Nick has kind of delivered the bad news to Kathy that like okay your husband's boat was found dot 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 she, he doesn't really mention anything about like his body all said and done but Kathy is just kind of you know slightly grieving and eventually she just says like okay we, we gotta leave we gotta go to the celebration so they go and the celebration is like right outside the door of this bar basically yeah so they're hearing <laughs> Stevie on the radio again because everybody in the town listens to the same radio station um, and she's given this report that the seagrass was found that mystery is solved so Nick goes to the payphone in the bar calls the station and tells Stevie like hey I'm the guy that found the seagrass and there was all kinds of weird shit that was on the boat and I've been experiencing all kinds of weird shit and she tells him like oh huh yeah I've also had a lot of weird shit going on and she tells him about the plane so they kind of swap their like clues and information and Nick and Elizabeth decide it would be best like let's go to the lighthouse radio station and let's put our hits together and get to the bottom of this yeah and meanwhile um, like kind of cut in between these scenes like you see the weatherman Dan driving to the station and he has the radio on as she's talking about stuff and I th- he's driving to the weather, the weather station. station yeah yeah weather station yeah. and he even I think makes a comment to like himself being like well I had off today but uh, you know what I just couldn't resist hearing your voice again baby <laughs> and so like he decided I guess to work tonight during the centennial just so he could like hear her and call and talk to her throughout the night so after Nick and Elizabeth decide to head to the lighthouse radio station that cuts back to Dan and he kind of relieves the guy who was working at the weather station and the guy's like oh yeah I was surprised you wanted to work tonight but you know I'll leave you to it by the way there's uh, some fog rolling in uh, looks like there's another fog bank that's appeared and it's moving towards the town I'm about to drive through it so see you later bro and so Dan kind of like sets up a little bit and he immediately calls Stevie and says hey look uh, another fog bank's rolling in is moving towards the town and Stevie at this point is like kind of dropping her seductive voice and now yeah. just straight up being like where's the fog uh, where are you at the moment and he's like the fog's out right outside it's at the weather station and as they're talking he hears a knock at the door and Stevie is like now really concerned freaking out like saying Dan whatever you do do not open the door just 
stay inside, close your doors, lock it, do whatever you have to do, do not go out into the fog. And he's, you know, just being like typical sleaze meathead, being like, yeah, yeah whatever. whatever, baby. You're just, hey, at one point he accuses her of being on some kind of drugs. He's like, oh, I understand now. You're on, you're on the special stuff, huh? And she's just like, no, I'm being totally serious. There's shit in the fog. Don't answer the door. And so he opens the door and she's like on speakerphone. So she's like hearing all of this happening. The knocking stops. He answers it. And at first you just see the glowing fog and he kind of is just standing in the doorway be like, there's nobody here. There's nothing here. And then <laughs> right when he says that, like, boom, Revenant, like hand comes out, grabs him, like dead. fucking lifts him up, like choking him dead. He gets slaughtered by the Revenants as Stevie listens to this. This is a pretty effective jump scare here where uh, where Dan eats it. So as the fog starts moving inland, Stevie starts sending out over the radio an emergency request for the sheriff. So the sheriff gets called out of the centennial celebration. Like somebody comes on stage and like whispers in his ear. And so he leaves the stage and goes into the bar and he calls Stevie and he gets on the phone with her and he's, she's like telling him about like, we need to get people out of the fog, like get people away from the centennial. Everyone needs to go home and lock their doors. Well, she, she doesn't even get through to him as she's yeah. like waiting on him and everything. You see the fog creep up to the telephone lines and just yoink, Wham! pull it loose. <laughs> <laughs> so before they can even talk and she can get the warning out, you know, the phone lines are all killed and the power's all killed because all of a sudden the lights at the centennial go out and they're all just like, well, what do we do with all these people? Yeah, so... Stevie runs downstairs to the bottom floor of the lighthouse and she has a backup generator so she cranks it up and gets it on and all the power comes back on the lighthouse and she just starts sending out she's not even in character anymore like DJ voice or anything she's just saying out this is an emergency please listeners go back to your house and stay there also my son is at my house if anyone is near my house please save my son stay out of the fog there's something in the fog that's dangerous and she is upstairs and since she's all the way at the top of the sill on top of this lighthouse. She sort of has like a vantage point over the entire town. So she sees like the fog enveloping her own house. I like these shots because I think there's like two or three shots of this. The shot that I really like and I go back to it like two or three times is the fog rolling in from the bay and it's like glowing that neon light as it's slowly coming in. Yeah. So yeah, so now she's straight up using her platform to beg people to like go to my house, please save my son. And sure enough, we cut back to the house and uh, her son and the nanny are looking out the window as this thick fog that's glowing is kind of surrounding the house and even the nanny is kind of like maybe you should go up to your room and just like hang out make sure all the windows are closed and just hang out (laughs) this is weird and like yes now somebody's knocking at the door you see kind of the outline of a person in the fog knocking on the door and yeah she opens the door and like she thinks Andy ran upstairs and went to his room but he kind of like does that little kid thing where he runs up the stairs but then like hides behind the wall and he's like peer creeping through the wall to see like what's going on still and yeah she opens the door and she gets fucking murdered by revenants and he sees all this and he fucking runs back to his room finally so Nick and Elizabeth manage to get to the weather station and immediately like they see that it's in shambles and they hear Stevie on the radio like calling like please somebody you know get to my house so they hop back in the truck and they 
they rush to Stevie's house just in time to rescue Andy from the ghosts. He is cowering on his bed as they are literally chopping the door down and coming after him. Nick from the outside punches in the glass from the window and pulls Andy through the window to the outside and they run around and hop in the truck. I want to know, this is where like my stupid brain who should just shut off and just accept the movie as it is kind of kicked in because I was just like, how big is this fog cloud then? Because if it's not big enough to envelop the entire house, like it only enveloped one side of the house as it was creeping in and the side just where Andy's room is and where he like breaks the window in and Andy crawls out of it and they run back to the truck. Yeah. It hasn't enveloped that side yet, but then it starts enveloping it as they're like trying to peel away once they get Andy back in his truck. I think it's one of those, you know, in Jurassic Park, the T-Rex knocks down the power fence and steps out onto the road, but then somehow the car gets knocked into the same area and like falls down a ravine that's like 50 feet, dot, dot, dot. It's just kind of one of those like, don't think about it. Yeah, don't think about it. Because like my impression, your impression throughout the entire movie is that if you are in the fog, you're fucked. Yeah. If you are not like indoors and even then you're not necessarily safe but if you're like not indoors in like a heavily secured area and the fog is around you you're you're, you're dead like these revenants are just going to come out of nowhere and hack you to pieces so yeah they hop in the truck and elizabeth is now like at the driver's wheel she's trying to get the like crappy old truck cranked up and get it going but it's kind of stalling a little bit and the wheels are spinning because it's in mud all the ghosts are surrounding them and slowly creeping up and there's that tension of like oh are they gonna get them but they manage to like you know zoom away there's a nice little jump scare in that too because at one point it's like the camera's like showing from the side on the driver's seat showing Elizabeth trying to get the truck to go and you see out of the driver window like the fog's there and then like a little bit of a flash and there's a ghost standing there yeah slowly making its way towards there and it kind of has a little nice jump scare and this is at this point where Stevie is now like still advising everyone to stay away from the fog and she's kind of also talking and using her vantage point to tell them where the fog cloud is at this moment in the town and tell them like which roads to avoid turn down this road not this road fog's on this road now fog is making its way down main street and she basically starts advising everyone to head to the town's church because that's the last part of town that isn't enveloped by the fog yet and nick elizabeth and andy are listening to it but also kathy and her assistant sandy are also listening to it in their own car because everyone left the centennial once the power went out kathy and sandy kind of like look at each other and instead of doing that dumb shit thing that a lot of people would do in horror movies be like yeah whatever and immediately drive into the fog and get killed like they're like maybe we should go to the church for a second because like we can still reach it so they all five of them gather at the church and uh father malone who kind of seems to sort of know what's going on they all get in there and they all basically barricade themselves into this church yeah they kind of have to like not slap father malone but just father malone calm the fuck down we're somewhere safe that we can be (laughs) and he crams everybody into this back room but yeah father malone is in full like we all gotta die drunk mode yeah so we then kind of cut back to the lighthouse where the ghosts are getting into the lighthouse now they've like made their way through the bottom door and they're moving their way up the lighthouse pushing stevie further and further up the group at the church is also now under siege by all the revenants and so they're breaking through the stained glass windows you see hands coming through and they're trying to shove pews and furniture up against the doors and the windows to keep them out. Also, too, at one point, they go back to the his grandfather's diary. Yeah, he kind of goes back to it to, like, find, like, there's got to be an answer in here, you know, so they yeah, read further. It's the, only, it's the only thing we have, and they kind of uh, find out his grandfather was the one who specifically stole the gold from the other consp- 
conspirators and hid it in the church. Also, too, this is kind of when you sort of find out that six people have to die at this hundredth year anniversary of this travesty. The spirits want to kill six people. They've already killed four. Well, they already killed five. five. Yeah, five. They have the three fishermen. The nanny. They have Dan the weather guy and then the nanny. Let's take a pause right here. I had a small theory going into this that the revenants were sort of almost targeting certain people. And again, this is my stupid brain just thinking too much into it. If this fog has enveloped the entire town at this point and it's just rolled up to the church and yeah, we didn't see that many people at the Centennial, which again goes back to like how many people actually live in this fucking town. Because why are people not being slaughtered? Why are people not being slaughtered left and right? So there is not a specific answer in the movie. As we are about to find out, Father Malone basically is convinced they are after me. I am the grandson of this guy who fucked them over. Like they specifically are after me. So you can read into the this, but in the novelization novelization of the fog, it is made explicit that the five people who have been killed so far are in fact descendants of the six murderers. That's what I thought. But the only reason why, like, I still question that is as the revenants are breaking their way into the church, they grab the hair of Sandy, like as if they're about to drag her out into the fog to kill her. Yeah, they're just attacking anybody. Yeah. So it's kind of it is kind of wishy washy. And then they're also trying to kill at the same time they're also trying to kill uh, her at the lighthouse as well yeah. and so I'm wondering if maybe they're multiple descendants and it's just as long as they get at least six of them six, yeah. so like and that's the other thing too is like say they, they actually were able to kill uh, her at the lighthouse or drag Sandy out of the church and kill her would that have stopped them then or like would they have just kept going until they got Malone I don't think it would have stopped them as we're about to find out yeah. so again you know we find out in the journal that Malone's grandfather like has some level of remorse about what they did and the supernatural shit is kind of starting to get to them even back then a hundred years ago so he steals all the golden treasure that they took from the ship from the other five people and like hides it in the church just to get all of it away from those guys because he knows like something's fucked the town is cursed so they start looking around and they start tearing more stones out of the wall where the journal was earlier and they find this giant cross that's forged from all the stolen gold. They like melted down all the gold and just made it into this giant solid bar cross essentially. So, you know, they take the gold cross out and Father Malone kind of like heaves it out into the chapel area of the church while all the other people are still fighting off the revenants. And he basically just calls Blake out as like, you know, hey, you know, I'm here. Take me. Save everybody else. The fog is inside the church at this point yeah. and you're seeing like multiple revenants like standing there among the pews and They're everything. They're all just standing there. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and like he, as soon as he calls out Blake, the one that's kind of in the front and in the middle, its eyes start glowing like red. This one you can infer is Blake. And he steps he forward. He steps yeah. forward and like, yeah, he's offering the gold to spare the rest of the town basically. He, he's offering the gold and himself as the sixth death. Yeah, um, which Blake is actually played by uh, makeup effects guy Rob Botton and he would go on to do Thing and Robocop, Total Recall and Seven. I mean, he's he's a maniac. All of his makeup effects are fantastic. And he was doing some of the effects for this movie specifically, but apparently he asked if he could play Blake, and Carpenter was like, sure, but stand up real quick. Okay, cool. And he just wanted to see, like, how tall he was because he wanted Blake to be kind of imposing and tall compared to Father Malone. And Rob Botton's like,
like six foot five. Oh shit. Other fun thing is this. The Father Malone role was originally offered to Christopher Lee. So he just didn't end up doing it for some kind of scheduling reasons. But Christopher Lee is also like six five. Like he's tall as fuck as yeah. well. So it's kind of funny that was kind of the original idea. It was like, let's just make sure that you're at least X tall all said and done. So we don't want you to just be like short going up against this guy. So we cut back to the lighthouse and we see the ghosts again are making their way upward and attacking Stevie. But she eventually gets up onto the roof of the lighthouse. She climbs a ladder and is on the roof to get away from them. But they're all slowly creeping up there as well too. One even creeps up behind her and manages to like stab her in the shoulder with one of the meat hooks. A nice a nice jump scare there too. That one, that one got me. Yeah. She's surrounded. The people in the church are now surrounded. Father Malone is offering the gold cross to Blake. So Blake grabs the gold cross, which suddenly starts to like glow really heavily. And Father Malone is like stuck to it as yeah. well in like some kind of trance. Something too that I wanted to uh, mention before the end of all this. You're starting to see up close now what the revenants look like between Blake uh, walking up to take the cross and one of the revenants. It actually shows a close up of its face when it's up on Stevie, like attacking her. And like the one that's on Stevie specifically, like its face is like slimy looking. Shit's green. like crawling out of its face. It's green. Yeah. It's a really cool like little effect. And I'm glad that they only really showed you like up close to evidence once or twice in this movie yeah. to still leave it to a degree of mystery. Because Blake up close looks a little, it looks a bit different than the other revenant that's attacking Stevie. They all have their own like features, it seems like. But yeah, just a little touch, nice little touch. So Malone and Blake are both gripping the gold cross, which is now glowing and starting to kind of smoke a little bit. Nick runs up and just tears Father Malone away from the cross and they both fall to the ground together. And, you know, Father Malone is like suddenly like out of the trance and he's okay. But Blake and the cross and the crew all just disappear in this giant blinding flash of light and the fog slowly starts to vanish. It just kind of rolls back out the doors and back out the windows and you see the fog roll away from the lighthouse and roll away out of the town. Stevie gets back into the radio station and just kind of sends one last warning out. Basically warn everybody of the evil on the horizon. Just watch out for the fog. Yeah, it's in the fog. Stay out of the fog. Yeah. So later that night, Father Malone like returns back to the church and he wonders aloud, why did Blake not kill me? Like six are supposed to die. Why was I spared? And then all of a sudden you see the fog creep back under the door and then you see all the revenants standing behind him. He looks up and sees them and then it cuts to him with Blake standing behind him and all of a sudden just you see Blake strike and then it cuts to credits. Yeah, as he's turning his head around, Blake like swings a sword, obviously going for his neck and right before the sword like makes contact with his neck, it cuts the credits. So yeah. he got decapitated, bro. You just didn't see it. <laughs> yep, he got get. So that's the fog, which again, simple story, told effectively, executed perfectly by Carpenter. Amazing atmosphere, amazing score, good performances, solid creep vibes all around. We didn't even really touch too much on the score, but it was it's John Carpenter. A John Carpenter movie is going to have a good score. Yeah, so fun stuff. Yeah. Ghost Pirates. Ghost Pirates and gold. So my question to you is, is this going to keep reoccurring every hundred years then? Or are the ghosts satisfied after they decapitated Malone? I don't know. I think that might be it. They got their gold back. They got their six 
kills in return, so maybe the the bargain is fulfilled. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Maybe every hundred years they keep coming back. I guess the only thing would just be they have the gold now, so what do? Yeah, I mean, what the fuck would you do with the gold, though, in the afterlife? Their afterlife of being on a ghost ship <laughs> as revenants. Like, what do you do with the gold at the point? I don't know. I'm, again, reading it when yeah. doing it, so. You buy lots of ghost booze and ghost booty. Yeah, yeah, there you go. On that note, thanks again to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our opening and closing themes of our podcast. Hey, party gator. And uh, opossums as well, right? Yep, yep. Check out their uh, new EP, Trash Candy, um, which is on Bandcamp. They are possibly about to have a vinyl edition of that as well. That will be available. Yeah, I saw him post about that. That's awesome. I might have to jump on that when it happens. Yeah, and once again, we are Watch If You Dare, the podcast. Podbean is our primary site, but we are also on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and the Podcoin app. Um, We are on Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. We get all kinds of love, especially on Twitter. So thank you for that. Thank you for all the people who have rated and review us on iTunes. Um, We are now sitting on uh, like over 150 reviews, which is amazing. So thank you for doing that and please continue to do so. That really helps out. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. How about you, Mansfield? Yeah, I think we're good for this week. Hopefully we'll have some guests on in the near future as we kind of figure out scheduling and go from there. So that's it. Wrapping up for the night. Maybe Elizabeth is still shacking up with uh, Tom Atkins' character in that coastal town right now. (laughs) Yeah, maybe they just stayed and maybe they're uh, hanging out and eating proactive yogurt and growing cool mustaches and having a good old time. And stomach pounders. Stomach pounders. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, You know who would like a stomach pounder? (laughs) Girl Sally. (laughs) So all you people out there, you take care now. This is D-A-R-E signing off with Sally. Sally, Sally.